Revelation chapter 22, as uh, we're wrapping up the study of this book, I think this is um, study number 34, so we uh, did not necessarily uh, race through the book of Revelation, uh, but, but I hope it's been um, a good, enlightening uh, study of Scripture, and it's the last chapter in the canon of Scripture, uh, so we know that this chapter is kind of like a punctuation mark, if you will, um, on the, um, the greater or the, the totality of the message of God's word. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, appropriately, uh, it is that because it's a beautiful chapter. So I'm going to pray for us and uh, we'll jump right into this. God, thank you so much for this chapter. It is refreshing. It is encouraging. It is enlightening. It is uplifting. Father, it's fulfilling. Thank you, God, for those of us who put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, that we have a settled destiny. Uh, God, it's not, a, it's, not, it's not a matter of uh, conjecture or crossing our fingers and, and hoping that something good happens after we die. But God, it is uh, not only established, but it is described in these words tonight. And, and God, this is your living word. And... And there is such a beautiful picture tonight that's painted for us. I pray that uh, the fullness of what you have conveyed in these words would just be experienced in our hearts tonight. And your Holy Spirit would give to each of us precisely what we need. We know, God, that you're present and that you can do that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I just want to... Uh, we, we happen to be, and this was not necessarily planned, it just kind of, it, it did work out like this. You know, we started, we did plan this. We started Genesis and, Genesis and Revelation at the same time back in August. And uh, we really felt like, man, it would be a pretty cool experience to be in the first book of the Bible and the last book of the Bible at the same time. And just to be able to have kind of the bookends and the, the picture of what God did in the beginning and um, not just with creation, and certainly not just with the fall of humanity, but the plan of Messiah. And then, you know, just the wrap-up, the, the, the end times piece of um, theology, those two things happening simultaneously. I know for me personally, as I've studied this again, it's been a blessing. Um, but I say all of that tonight to say that we're also ending these studies at the same time. So that was the, uh, that was the part that wasn't planned. Uh, this Sunday we end our study in the book of Genesis, and tonight we're ending our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, and then, of course, next week we're going to be starting in the gospel according to Mark. Um, but this, so, so I'm saying that to you just to connect two things tonight. Um, as we started in Genesis, we know that really the, the Bible begins in a garden. Uh, tonight what we discover is that the story ends in a garden. It begins with a tree in the book of Genesis. And tonight what we're going to see that it also ends with the tree or with many trees that are lining this river um, of water that is called the water of life. The Bible begins with the rule of God and God's relationship with humanity, and it ends in a similar place. Obviously, we have the beautiful city of God that descends from heaven, but of course, it's not as magnificent as the city is, right? Constructed out of pure gold and pearls and precious stones and things like that, um, that really is not the glory of the city. The glory of the city is that God and the Lamb are at the center and, and we, as the people of God, are inhabiting not just a city, but we are in eternal relationship with God the Father. So we see that at the beginning in Genesis, we certainly see that at the end here in Revelation, because that is uh, ultimately the purpose of God's work in our lives. I would encourage you just to go back this week and read the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, and then... Uh, later on this week, maybe at the same time, just read the final two chapters in the book of Revelation uh, because it's so encouraging. You know, this book is so refreshing. This chapter is so refreshing. It's so uplifting. I don't know today what you came in with. Uh, maybe you came in burdened or maybe you came in discouraged. Maybe you came in a little concerned about your future. And uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, here's your future right here. It's like, it's laid out in the word of God. You know, years ago, I was in the city of San Francisco. 
I was with my sister. We were having lunch. She was making a reservation. I was sitting on a bench, and a lady came up to me. She, she sat down, and she said, hey, listen, um, I would like to read your palm so I can tell you what your future is. And, and I said to her, listen, I don't need my palm read. I just read the Bible, and the Bible tells me what my future is. It is all laid out in the Word of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. So... So here it is, here it is, I pray that you're encouraged by these words tonight. The Bible says in verse 1, and he showed me, we're talking about the angel, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree uh, yielding its fruit. Every month the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So... You know, this helps me when I study scripture, just to take the chapter and kind of break down the key uh, points that are in the chapter. And so tonight, what we're going to be reading is, we have a beautiful description of this heavenly picture, the, uh, the epicenter of the New Jerusalem. We have a strong warning uh, for those who are living in a condition of sin to understand you're not always going to have an opportunity to turn your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is then a loving invitation in verses 12 to 17, so just right after the strong warning is a loving invitation with a very strong word, of course the word is come. There's a closing exhortation not to mess with the word of God, and then there's a final gracious benediction. But here in verses 1 to 2, the angel, and I, you know, for some reason the phrase, he showed me, uh, just really stands out to me. I think it's such a beautiful picture of the angel walking John through, right? I mean, this is not, remember, of course, our approach to the word of God is always to err on the literal, grammatical interpretation of scripture, um, but, but we also don't want to be so wooden in our interpretation that we miss um, some of the beautiful nuances, and I think one beautiful nuance here is that the angel, you know, is showing not just John details. John's just not like, you know, uh, writing data down, point one and point two and point three. It's like, man, look at this beautiful picture, almost as if the angel is taking John step by step into another beautiful aspect of this extraordinary scene in the new city. And what we see in this picture is there's a pure river of water of life that proceeds from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Uh, if you're a student of Scripture, you know this isn't the first time that you've seen a river uh, proceeding from the city of Jerusalem. You saw that in Ezekiel's picture of uh, what we believe to be the third temple. Of course, when Jesus comes back and he stands on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives will split in two and there will be a river of water that flows to the Mediterranean. And then uh, on the other side, there will be another river that flows east down into the Dead Sea and it causes the Dead Sea to come to life. Well, this particular river is neither of those. It is a brand new river, and, uh, and it is it's described as clear as crystal, and it contains water of life. So it's not stagnant. Um, it's not polluted. It's not toxic. You're not going to get sick. There's no flesh-eating diseases in this river. It is pure. It is refreshing. It is healing uh, you'll recognize that the word life appears over and over in these uh, verses, and that, of course, is what Jesus came to give us, not just in this life, but in the life to come. He came to give us zoe, that's the Greek word, as opposed to uh, the other Greek word for life, which is bios, that means like physical life in this life. He came to give us an extraordinary life that is um, spiritual in nature, that is fulfilling that is satisfying. When you and I are in heaven, we're never going to experience lack. We're never going to be coveting. Um, there's, there's never going to feel in our hearts like there's a missing piece or a missing part or we wish that there was something else. It will be absolute satisfaction because life itself is going to come like a river from God. Um, and there's not only a river of water of life that proceeds from the throne of God and of the Lamb, but there is also, the Bible says here, um, tree, a tree of life, or many trees, it would seem to indicate that there's more than one, 
but this river goes right down the main street uh, in the city, the, the, the heavenly Jerusalem, and on, then on either side of this glorious river that is like clear as crystal, there uh, is the tree of life, and that harkens you back, of course, to uh, Genesis chapter uh, 2, and, and then as, you know, it's kind of conveyed here, the description becomes a little fuller. It seems as if lining the sides of this river is the tree of life, but many trees of life. Uh, and the leaves, this is like a supernatural tree, right? This isn't your ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill tree. The tree itself has, uh, the word here is um, healing properties, but probably, most likely, we're talking not about healing, but health-giving uh, because remember, when we're in eternity with God in this brand new city, there is no sickness, there is no disease, uh, there is no effect of age, there is no hair loss. Thank you, God. No, I don't know if we're gonna, I don't know if we're gonna have heavenly hair, um, but there's there will be no. I received that in Jesus' name right there. All right, can I get an amen from the rest of the church? All right, there it is. There it is. Um, there's going to be no, you know, uh, decaying uh, of our DNA, right? It's going to be absolute, total perfection. And so, you know, the healing of the nations would seem to indicate that there is still something broken that needs to be fixed. And so some commentators say, well, of course, that's not possible because this is heaven and everything that needed to be fixed is already fixed. So probably what we're talking about is... Um, Properties that lead to the enjoyment of life. I probably would land on that. Verse 3, the Bible says, and you can give an amen to this tonight, and there shall be no more curse. Isn't that great news? There shall be no more curse. Right? This is kind of how uh, we see this chapter tying off the story of uh, humanity and, and history because as we start the book of Genesis, we, we recognize that two chapters in, it's already been a train wreck because man, just by nature, seems to always make the wrong decision. And we've been living under the consequences of that uh, for well over 6,000 years. Um, let me read these verses and we'll talk about them. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. You think that's great. Check this out. They shall see his face... I told you there's great phrases here. And his name shall be on their foreheads. Check this out. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So we have this beautiful description, right? And there are these physical properties that John is still talking about as the angel is like leading him by the hand and showing him this glorious picture, this glorious scene the throne of God, God right in the center, this river of water of life that is flowing right down the main street, and then a tree or trees lined up on the sides. And that physical description is great, but it's nothing compared to what is conveyed in verses 3 to 5. Right? The burden of the curse. Even, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, even creation itself is groaning for the day of the redemption of the sons and daughters of God when the burden of the curse will be lifted and there will be real liberty and freedom that we will experience. And by the way, just to let you know, there is no utopia that can be brought on this earth in the context of time that man will ever be able to produce what God is able to produce in heaven, right? There's no form of government. There's no perfect solution or situation where we can bring heaven on earth. No, this is something that we're looking forward to God doing. He alone is able to undo the train wreck that humanity has caused. And listen, I mean that in a macro sense, and I mean it in a micro sense tonight. Maybe today you're a train wreck. Maybe today you've made a wreck out of your life. And, and I just want to let you know there is great news tonight. There is one who can undo the mess that you have made. And you know, he doesn't just start the work in heaven. He can start the work right here and right now. 
He's the one, if you come to him by faith in Jesus Christ, of course, putting your trust and faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but then laying down all of the, all of the dysfunction and all of the sin and all of the bad decisions and all of the failures and all of the pain that you caused other people, you can place that into the hands of God. This is how mighty and miraculous he is. You can place that into the hands of God and he can reshape that into something good. Do you need that tonight? You know, as you look at your life, do you see just a, not just a train wreck, but you see a train of dysfunction that's been following you? Man, you can take that and place it in the hands of God, and he can even undo that in this life. There shall be no more curse. You can say amen to that tonight. There shall be no more curse. Um, obviously, it's a place where God rules because right at the center is the throne of God and of the Lamb. And his servants shall serve him. So in, in this place, in heaven, God is the king, right? God is the king. Some of you are like, man, I can't wait for my mansion and my recliner and my remote. And, and I'm going to boss people around. Well, guess what? Um, you, may be, you may feel like you're the king in this life. You are not the king in the life to come. Really, you're not the king in this life either, okay? So maybe you see your recliner like your throne. Guess, guess what? There's a greater throne. It's the throne of God, and you need to be submitted to him. But he is the one that's ruling and reigning. He is the king. You know, it's not as if what God has brought us into is a democracy, you know, where, where, we, have a, where we have some, some capacity to choose or, you know, to vote as if God is, like, directed by some voting process. It's a monarchy. He is the king. Now, we're blessed to be sons and daughters of the king. You know, it's, it's part of the family, but he is the one that rules and reigns. And we are his servants. This is my point here. We are his servants in this life, but we are also his servants in the life to come, right? And his servants shall serve him, his due loy, his bond servants, those who have humbled themselves and submitted themselves to God, those who seek to do those things that please the master, he is our father, he is our king, he is our Lord, he also is our master. And the truth is this, if you're not his servant now, you will not be his servant then. There's nothing greater than being a servant of God. You say, well, what benefit is it to serve God? Well, verse four, the Bible says, they shall see his face. Man, isn't that amazing? I have, I have this uh, feeling or impression that when we're in this uh, heavenly Jerusalem, you know, it might be for a second, you know, it might be for a second that we're standing at those gates that are made of one single pearl, and we're like, man, you know, this isn't even just a mosaic of different pieces of pearl. This is one massive pearl. How big was this oyster, right? I mean, one massive pearl that God has shaped the, the gate out of. And then you're looking at the foundation and all the different precious stones that this massive city is sitting on. What kind of bedrock is that, right? I mean, we're used to caliche. Heaven is a completely different uh, set of resources. We're walking down streets of gold, and the gold is so pure, it's absolutely transparent. I mean, it's going to be amazing to behold, and I think for a moment we may be in awe over the raw materials that God uses to make this city out of. But man, the second we see his face, none of those things are gonna matter. I mean, to see the face of God, what a, what a powerful phrase that is. And then not just to see his face, what a privilege and, a, and an honor it is to be able to see the face of God and live, but also the name of God will be on our foreheads. I think that's going to be amazing. You, you think, well, what does that mean? Hey, we are marked by God. We belong to him. You know, maybe for some of you, you know, you feel like you just don't fit anywhere. And I think this is why, you know, like in the, in the urban area, people are drawn to, to gangs and things like that. They're looking for something to belong to. Oftentimes, they don't have any family. And there's nothing better than belonging to the family of God. There's nothing better than, than to belong to God and to have his name. We, we not only uh, will belong to him for all of eternity, and not just his as a possession, but his as part of his family. 
but then in addition to that, we'll be identified with him. And what a privilege, what a privilege. You know, I think there's probably some people in your life where um, when you're identified with them, you might be a little embarrassed or you might think, well, you know, I mean, I don't really like being identified with that person. And I think, man, if anybody could be embarrassed of identifying with somebody, it would be God identifying with us. Like, you know, yeah, hey, uh, Calvary Chapel, Las Vegas, or Awake in Las Vegas, I love all my, all my faithful sons and daughters. I'm not sure about Derek, but, you know, like, we'll, we'll keep him over here. We don't want to broadcast that too much. Sometimes I, I, you know, I feel that way. Like, God, who am I? What is man that you're mindful of him? That we not only have the privilege of identifying with Christ through faith in the cross, but you know what? He is going to usher us into the presence of the Father. I love the picture of this. And he is going to declare our name before the Father and all of the holy angels without, without shame, without embarrassment. Listen, he knows everything that you've done, not just over the course of your whole life, but today. Today. And still, he's going to bring you in, and he's going to, with, with great pride and joy, the word that is used in an eschatological sense for this moment from the Old Testament is with joy. He is going to present you before the Father and the millions of angels with joy. What a beautiful picture that is. I just want to encourage you to receive that. Receive it tonight. You know, there's sometimes there's just so much complexity in our hearts and we can be so overwhelmed by discouragement and we can we can feel so marginalized and unaccepted and rejected you guys know you may not articulate this you may not say this out loud but I guarantee you you have felt that you know you have felt marginalized or unaccepted by family members or by friends or by people in the workplace and you know you bear that wound you bear that hurt. You know, you struggle with that. Maybe sometimes even on a daily basis. And of course, you know, I pray that, I pray that, that if that is the case, that that changes in your life. But there is one who is not embarrassed or ashamed of you. There is one who takes great joy in calling you his, and that is Jesus Christ. And today, you know, tonight, just receive that. You know, this beautiful picture is he's kind of wrapping it up. He says, there will be no night. And uh, I believe that that is true in a physical sense. I also believe that that is conveying a spiritual element too because there's a great contrast between light and darkness, not just in, a, in the physical aspect, but in the metaphysical aspect as well. And then we know that, like, let's just take it from the physical aspect, that light itself will be emanating from God. We're not going to need the sun, uh, we're not going to need the celestial sphere, we're not going to need the moon, because the moon is unnecessary, it just reflects the sun anyway, and then in addition to that, there will be no night, but we will not need any of that, because God, light itself, will be pouring out of the Father, man, that is just, I can't, Lord, hasten the day, and the Bible says, they shall reign forever and ever, and so the picture of this, of course, is this is not just for a moment in time, this is not just going to be some passing thing, um, this is not a finite experience, but this is something that will go on in an endless capacity. Man, nothing more beautiful. Every single glimpse of beauty that God has given to you in this life is just a, a whisper a, a whisper. We were in Mexico, and um, I was standing there uh, just looking at the Pacific Ocean, and, you know, I just, I love it. I love, I love God's creation, and I love the Pacific Ocean, and I love to watch the sunset, you know, and for some of you, maybe it's not the ocean, maybe it's the mountains and the trees. For some of you, you go for a walk, and you hear the birds singing, you know, and it's like, oh, man, that's beautiful, how God has even shaped uh, this little creature and is able to sing a song that sounds so unique and so personal. I don't know what it is for you in the general revelation of God that kind of stirs you to, to see some aspect of God's beauty, but all of it is simply just a whisper and God is saying to you, the best is yet to come. Man, the best is yet to come. The sunset's amazing, it is, but the best is yet to come. 
We drove into Las Vegas, uh, Rachel and I did, and we were looking at the mountains. And the mountains are beautiful. They're majestic, right? They're solid. They're immovable. They're always that expression of the steadfast faithfulness of God because you can't move the mountain. And then you look at the striations in the mountain and the various colors and all of the elements that that compose the mountain, and, and for, for us, it's like, man, it's such a beautiful scene. It is simply God whispering to us, saying, the best is yet to come. You know, one day, we will see him face to face, and I can't wait for that day. The Bible goes on to say, then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And listen, I think that, you know, John's like, this feels too good to be true, right? And so there's almost this emphasis that the angel brings. He's like, listen, I am telling you these words. They're settled in heaven. These are facts. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. We're wrapping all the way back to Revelation chapter 1. The Bible says in verse 7, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So um, the second section here, we're talking now about a strong warning, you know, or a really solid and strong exhortation. Uh, and so there is a, an emphasis that's what, that what is contained, not just right there in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 22, are actually true and faithful words. But I think that God is saying everything that's been contained in this prophetic word is faithful and true. And the angel, the purpose of the angel is to disclose to the servants of God uh, those things which must shortly take place. Uh, and shortly for us has been 2,000 years, right? It's been 2,000 years. I explained the word uh, shortly or quickly to you when we started this book, and the impression is um, th there's a variety of different ways that you can take this word, but one way is once these events begin to happen, uh, they happen in quick su succession. Kind of like if you set up dominoes and you click one domino, they all begin to fall in short order. And so these particular end times events, once they start to roll, they are all going to uh, come to pass quickly. And then three times in this final chapter, Jesus says to his uh, disciples that he is coming quickly. And then there's a beatitude here. There are a couple beatitudes in this final chapter. Uh, the beatitude here that uh, we're starting with, the first one at least, is the person who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book is going to be blessed. And so that doesn't just mean keep in your mind or keep as a memory or have it in the knowledge bank. Um, it also means to do it, to apply it, um, to receive it, to, to live it out uh, he goes on to say, now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. John blows it again, all right? God, God bless him. I mean, you, we'll talk about this in a second. You kind of can't blame him, but uh, the angel responds, like we know the angel's going to respond, and he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So listen, John just says, uh, I, I heard these things. I saw these things. They no doubt were overwhelming for John. They were awesome in nature. And when I say awesome, I mean they brought him to a place of absolute awe. And so what does he do? He falls down and he worships the instrument. He worships the messenger, not the first time that John has made this mistake and not the first time that John has been exhorted by an angel not to do that. And so, listen, we've talked about this before. The, the, the messenger says, don't ever do that. I'm just like you. You know, I, it's interesting here that we have kind of a description of the ministry of angels, right? What do angels do? Well, they're servants of God, you know, and they serve along with the people of God, verse 9, for I'm your fellow servant. And the second thing is this, angels are like prophets and of your brethren the prophets. They declare forth those things that God has spoken. We certainly understand that that is a ministry of angels. 
Uh, and then in addition to that, they are like those who keep the words of the book. So they live, uh, and the angels do have, clearly they have volition, right? I mean, they have the capacity to choose. We know that's the case because a third of them chose to rebel against God. They followed Lucifer, who ultimately became Satan, the devil, um, the serpent of old. Uh, but they align themselves with those who are obedient to God. And so then he brings this strong exhortation, worship God. You know, we've talked about this, and I don't want to necessarily beat a dead horse here, but sometimes what happens is, you know, God will move through an instrument. He'll move through a person, and he will touch our lives. Maybe it's a profound teaching. You know, maybe it's a teaching, uh, the preaching of the gospel that leads us to faith in Jesus, Maybe it's a, the consistent teaching, spirit-filled, empowered teaching, faithful teaching of the word of God that God uses to shape us, to sanctify us into the image of Jesus. Maybe it's someone that leads in worship. And so, you know, we're brought into the presence of God. And listen, all of that carries a lot of emotion, a lot of feeling, a lot of life experience. And if we're not careful, what happens is this. Sometimes we can start to worship the instrument, Sometimes, sometimes, you know, that instrument can be so powerfully used in our lives that we take our eyes off of the one who is using the instrument and we set our eyes on the instrument that's being used. And, and, and if we're not careful, what we can end up doing, not that we would ever necessarily say that we do it, but sometimes we do. We start to, we start to worship the instrument. We start to give praise and glory and honor to the instrument instead of the one who is using the instrument, the one who has the instrument in his hands, the one who's empowering the instrument, right? The one, the one who has given the spiritual gift to the instrument. Because remember, when we're operating in the spirit and we're fulfilling the calling that God has on our lives, all we're doing is using something that God has given to us. I mean, the gifts of God are not native to us until we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And then the Bible says, he distributes as he desires. And so when someone is operating as a worship leader and they're functioning in the calling of God on their life, everything that comes through them is not sourced in them, it's sourced in God. And when someone is preaching the gospel, as charismatic, as influential, as, as large as life of a personality as they may have, everything that's coming through um, that is used as, uh, in a powerful way to touch your heart fundamentally finds itself rooted and sourced in God. And so I, there I told you I wasn't going to beat a dead horse, but I, I just did. So, so the closing exhortation on this is let's make sure we don't worship the instrument. Let's make sure we worship God. It's not wrong to encourage people when God uses them, right? It may be that God, God uses a worship leader, or God uses a teacher, or God uses a preacher, or God uses somebody that is serving uh, in beyond or in some other capacity. It is good to bring a word of encouragement because listen, when you're serving God, what you really want to know is that God is using your life to bless other people. And so that word of encouragement is important and it's good, but let's make sure it never moves into the realm of worship. He says in verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. So just so we all understand, you know, sometimes, or there have been times where people have, have placed the book of Revelation in this category uh, of a sealed book, which, which means that it can't be understood, right? It's something that, that God has chosen not to reveal to his servants, no matter how hard you pray, no matter how tied in you are with the Spirit of God as you're looking to him to be your teacher, some people say, well, you might as well not study that book because it's impossible to understand anyway. Well, that's not what verse 10 says. Verse 10 says that the words of this prophecy are not sealed. They, they have been disclosed. I'm not saying to you tonight that everything in the book of Revelation is easy to understand. But what I am saying to you tonight, that if we study it, as, as, as we read it, as we're trusting in the Spirit of God to lead us and to guide us and to be our teacher, progressively what we will experience is a greater and greater understanding of this book. 
And this, by the way, is one of the reasons why we approach this book as simply as we can with respect to interpretation. You know, we take the, the book of Revelation at face value unless there are words in these words that would indicate that we can move into, hey, this is a metaphor, or this is a, a simile, or this is a picture of something. Um, if we don't have that, then we just take it at face value, um, as opposed to trying to make the book of Revelation say something that it doesn't say. Because sometimes it's hard to understand because people just input all of their ideas that go well beyond the simple interpretation of the book. Verse 11 says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Um, there certainly are people who have misunderstood verse 11 and, and have said, well, this kind of reads like God is advocating for people to maybe continue to live in a place where they're unjust or filthy or unrighteous. And certainly that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying there is coming a time where the way that you're living will be a settled decision. It'll be a settled decision. You know, when he comes back, the Bible says he's coming quickly. When he comes back and we are taken into his presence, there's going to be no opportunity to repent or to change, you know, the condition that we die in or the condition that we find ourselves in when he comes back is going to be a settled condition. And so that's why there is such a strong exhortation to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. The Bible, we're going to see this in just a minute, is consistently beckoning people to come to not delay or to resist turning your life over to the Lord, almost as if you can assume that you're going to have another opportunity down the road. Because no one, no one is guaranteed that. No one is guaranteed that. He goes on to say in verse 12, and this is now moving into the third section, uh, this loving invitation. The Bible says, and behold, I'm coming quickly, a second time he says it, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Uh, by the way, later on, I'd encourage you to uh, go to blueletterbible.org, do a, a word search on these specific names that Jesus uses to refer to himself. And what you'll find in the Bible is that the Father also uses these words to refer to himself. So in the Greek uh, alphabet, alpha is the first letter, omega is the final letter. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is the one that transcends time. He is the one who has always been here before anything else was ever here. And there's only one person who can say that, and that is God. And so what you see in the Bible is you look at these words or these names or some would call them appellations that Jesus uses to refer to himself, they are also used to describe the Father because the Father and the Son are one. I'm not saying to you tonight that the Father is the Son or the Son is uh, the Father or the Son is the Father and the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit is the Father and the Son, but I am saying to you tonight that the Father is in the Son and in the Holy Spirit and the Son is in the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is in the Father and in the Son. So... That's the Trinity, and it's a total miracle. It's just a miracle. That, by the way, is called the perichoresis in Greek. That's a mutual indwelling of the triune Godhead. There you have it. Verse 14 says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, uh, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So strong, strong, uh, loving invitation, but also strong exhortation here to be not just a, a Bible reader or a Bible knower, but to also be a Bible doer, right? It's not just about Bible knowing, it's about Bible doing. And tonight it's great that you're here. And I'm thankful that you have a hunger and a thirsting for the word of God. But God does not just want the information to, to, to be maintained in our mind. He wants it also to influence our heart, right? It is our mind and our heart. You shall love the Lord your God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord 
your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, right? It is, this is the second beatitude in this chapter. If you want to be blessed, follow the commandments. Do what God says. That's where the place of blessing is. So we have this beautiful city. Um, We have gates to this city that those who love God are free to go in and out of. And then he says in verse 15, but outside are dogs. He's not talking about uh, Rottweilers and Mastiffs and things like that. Um, When the Bible refers to dogs, I mean, this is one of the lowest uh, ways of describing somebody who doesn't know God. Really, the Apostle Paul used it for those who had um, taken the gospel of Jesus Christ and perverted it into a system of legalism and works. Uh, But what we're talking about here are people who have chosen to reject and deny faith in Jesus Christ and have walked uh, and lived their lives according to the flesh. But outside are dogs and sorcerers. Um, Sorcerers, those would be people uh, who use... Uh, illicit drugs for recreational use or for uh, spiritual experiences. He goes on to describe those, those individuals as sexually immoral. Uh, so this is a very general term for sexual immorality in anything outside of the parameters or prescribed boundaries that God has set. Uh, and those would be a marriage, a covenant between one man and one woman and God for a lifetime. He goes on to describe uh, this group of people as murderers, idolaters, those who uh, worship false gods or other gods, and whoever loves and practices a lie. So listen, tonight you're like, well, I'm not a sorcerer. I'm not sexually immoral. I'm not a murderer. I don't do idolatry. Dang. You know? Man, are we, are, are we people who are truth tellers, right? Are we people who are truth tellers? Or do we shape the truth, depending on how it'll benefit us. Um, the picture here for sure is not like there's this great city with all of these godly people on the inside, and then right outside the city, there are all of these ungodly people. No, we're talking about the place that's called the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. And then check out this loving invitation. And the spirit and the bride say, say it nice and loud, y'all. And let him who hears say, and let him who thirsts, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Uh, This is an amazing invitation, right? I mean, clearly, clearly consequences to our sin can be avoided. And there is an invitation that the Holy Spirit gives and the Holy Spirit gives the invitation through the bride of Christ. Who is the bride of Christ? That's the people of God. That's the church, right? And so what I love about this is God is saying to people, listen, he's not saying go away. He is saying come. He's saying bring the need that you have and come. If you hear these words, you need to come. The church doesn't say, hey, it's us four and no more. The church says to the world, come just as you are and find real satisfaction and real life. Jesus gave this invitation at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7, verse 37, and he said this. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Man, that is so good. That is so good. He beckoned people to come. He understood that there was a thirst that every single human being had. And the only way to have that thirst quenched or satisfied is through faith in Christ. You know, he invites you to come. God doesn't say, I'm going to drag you into my kingdom. God doesn't say, well, you're coming whether you like it or not. There is an invitation that he gives. Listen, the picture is this. There is an outstretched hand, right? And the outstretched hand has a print in its wrists where the nail was driven. Christ's arms were stretched out wide, beckoning all of humanity to come to him. And he will receive anyone who comes to him in faith. 
You know, in it, invariably, inevitably, there's somebody that's listening maybe in this room or online, and you're like, well, you know what? There's no way he could receive me. There's no way that that general invitation, maybe it does apply to everybody else, but there's no possible way that that could apply to me because I am so far gone. I am so lost. My life is so full of sin. I have hurt so many people, and nothing could be further from the truth for you tonight. God beckons you to come. God is able to save from the uttermost to the guttermost. There is no pit that is too deep for Christ to pull you out of if you will simply just take the hand that is being extended to you. Jesus said it. He said, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Tonight he calls you to come. The Bible says in verse 18, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues, lots of plagues, that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Uh, in other words, don't mess with the word of God. Like, don't mess with the Bible. This for sure is specific to this book. We know that that's the case because he says it, right? He's talking about this particular prophecy, those things written in this book. We don't just have the freedom to make it up as we go along. We certainly don't have the freedom to exalt our opinion or our tradition over the word of God. And you know this was what the Pharisees did. And Jesus said it to him. Hey, the problem with you guys, he didn't say it like word for word like this, but essentially he was saying, the problem with you guys is that you have exalted the tradition of man as superior to the word of God. You know, and in that you have shaped, you've manipulated, you've twisted, you've taken something true and you've perverted it so that now it's, it, it conveys something that's false. Man, what a responsibility we have to not mess with the word of God. And so he closes here in verse 20, and he says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming quickly, third time. And, of course, John says, Amen, or so be it. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, Lord. And then a great final word of just a beautiful, gracious benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And again, he said, all God's people said, final word, the final word in this word is grace. Grace is the final word, the unmerited favor of God to the infinitely ill-deserving. God loves to give to you what you don't deserve. You know, don't resist the blessings of God because you just, you're a Christian, right? Yeah. Right? You're a Christian. Don't, don't, don't say to God, well, God, you know what, I, 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 I want to I wanna receive that, but you know I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Well, duh. <laughs> Nothing could be more obvious than the fact that you're not worthy. But your worthiness never made you worthy to receive the blessing in the first place. Right? It's his worthiness. It's his work on the cross. That's why it's called a blessing that's why the, the grace of God is a gift. Know what you need to do tonight, whatever it may be in your life that God is desiring to do, you need to receive it as an unmerited, unearned gift that has been given to you simply because you've put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Thank God for his grace. Let's pray together. And Father, we're thankful tonight for your grace and God, for every word in this word. Thank you, God, for this book and what we've learned over the course of these many weeks. And help us, God, help us to keep the things that have been written, not only on these pages, but, God, upon our hearts. Help us, Father, to walk in your grace. Help us to be obedient servants. God, not just looking forward to the time where we can serve you in heaven, but Truly and sincerely, God, laying our lives down in this life. Father, I pray tonight that, that, that the healing properties of your Holy Spirit, who really is the water of life to our hearts, God, would be experienced in this place. 
God, for hearts that have yet to put their trust and faith in you, we pray tonight would be the night that step is taken. God, for those tonight who've just been wounded and are marginalized and rejected and just feel alone, tonight I pray that you would draw near to them and that they would know that they are accepted in the beloved, that they belong to you, and you are pleased, God. It brings you great joy to call them your own. Tonight, as we're closing uh, in this moment, we just want to give you an opportunity tonight, the message of God, the message of the Holy Spirit, the message of the people of God is very simple. It's one word, and it's come. Tonight, you can come to God just as you are, you can come in your brokenness. You can come uh, with the, the fear and the trepidation. Tonight you can come with the, the chaos possibly that you've caused in the lives of others. Tonight you can come with your guilt and your shame. Tonight you can come with your addictions. Tonight you can come in your emptiness. Tonight you can come, whilst doubts still linger in your mind, you can come tonight just as you are, and you can take that outstretched hand of Christ, the, the, the wrist that was pierced for you, and you can be fully received and fully accepted you tonight can become a son or a daughter of the living God, not because you earn it, not because you come to church, but because he paid a price for you that you could never pay yourself. And tonight you can receive redemption and forgiveness and everlasting life and satisfaction, purpose, meaning. Tonight you can stand upon the truth of God's word and you can experience his peace that passes all understanding. Uh, tonight, if this is you, you need to put your trust and faith in Christ. You've come in this place tonight or you're watching online, but the truth is this, you're not born again. You've never been born again by God's spirit. You've never humbled yourself and confessed your sin and trusted in Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Tonight, if you want to take that step of faith, I want to pray for you this evening. I'm going to ask right where you're sitting, would you raise your hand? You just stretch your hand up high and acknowledge tonight that you want to believe in Jesus. You want to leave this place belonging to God. And Father, we thank you. Oh God, we thank you tonight that we're your sons and daughters and we bless your name, God, and we're so thankful that while you use instruments, you are the only one that deserves our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.